because it's actually been a month <laughs> since we. I know, I know, because I've I've looked up my, my record card. <laughs> do you want to do all five shows? I'm aiming to get finished for nine o'clock because there's a miserable BBC One drama I'd quite like to see. Which one's that? Um, it's a true story. It's it's Timothy Spall as as a rather isolated academic who gets befriended by a young man and perhaps fails to see the dangers that may lie ahead. Like I said, based on a true story, based on a true case. I vaguely remember this. So, uh, yes, doesn't end well for Timothy Spall unless he comes back in, in flashback. I'll tell you what, because we only have one more episode of The Black and White Saints. So oh, right, okay. And after that, nothing. There was just tumbleweed on Sunday evenings. Oh, now what are we going to do? We have to find a new series. Yes, I've not quite finished UFO yet, but Legend finished UFO. And then what they have decided to do is put the prisoner in its place. Ah, oh, there we go. Because they're in colour and they can mm -hmm. do that sort of thing. So what I propose to do is we could next time just do the very last episode of uh, The Black and White Saint and then review the 78 <laughs> previous ones and look forward to colour. Or we could leave people with The Saint Bids Diamonds and The Spanish Cow. Okay, and then the last black and white one. Well, yeah. Do we know if uh, Talking Pictures will be showing the colour series? I doubt it because they're available on ITVX. And I suspect that because of rights issues, and of course the colour episodes were made by the Baymore Company. Oh, right, okay. That sounds like an offshore tax dodge. Well, it could be, but it stands for, I think, Baker and Moore. Oh, see what they did there. Okay, yeah. Roger obviously had a lot more control over... Uh, things and I think they get to be even more urbane than, um, than <laughs> possibly be on the urbane meter because the first episode of the uh, color series is actually the first one which is not from a source by Leslie Charteris because he used to write in black and white if you remember back in the 30s and 40s indeed though later on they do base the house on Dragon's Rock on a Leslie Charteris story. Oh, right, okay. And that, of course, is The Giant Ants, which some reviewers on IMDb have been less than charitable about. How dare they? Where's their broadening of minds? So, if listeners have joined us, welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television. Uh, I'm Guy Morgan. I'm joined by my co-host, David Newell. And we've been discussing, because of various special ops that we've been engaged in the episodes that we haven't reviewed so far and we're very conscious that there's only one more to come however we will do a roundup of three that we haven't done and save the other two and the next one for reviewing before we look at the entire roger moore black and white saint oeuvre uh, and see whether there are any constant trends and strands and even tropes to be gleaned from in fact in the five that we've been watching um, we're not going to cover them all today i would say that actually there is a reasonably common thread coming through quite a lot of them i mean for example 
The Smart Detective. What would you say the MacGuffin was in The Smart Detective? Um, well, the MacGuffin here, the Smart Detective, by the way, is um, a rather unctuous young man um, who appears to be cleaning up as a security expert um, around London. And uh, Simon, who's never one to shy away from a challenge, thinks that uh, he will be able to circumvent uh, the sophisticated pieces of security equipment that the smart detective has installed in the world-famous Westminster Museum, London, England. Which looks a little like the church next door to Broadcasting House. <laughs> It may possibly be. And the idea is that there's this public challenge of being able to potentially steal what is on display at the Westminster Museum. I should point out as well um, that at this point in the Runners and Riders, it appears that even the police, in the form of our old favourite called Eustace Teal, doesn't quite figure um, that Peter Corio, the, the smart detective, is all that kosher. Yes. I mean, you referred to him as a young man, and I think he's described as that in the show notes uh, for the episode. Mm. I wouldn't say he looks that young to me. He's had a tough life. <laughs> it's a tough life being a smart detective. Uh, it ages you. Few people know that Columbo's actually in their mid-20s. All those little grey cells <laughs> that get such a hammering. A smart detective, I mean, the whole feel of it feels like it's very much straight from a Leslie Charteris story. It does, that idea of, of, of competing individuals, that idea of something on, on display to be to be stolen, uh, almost sanctioned by the police, almost like as a dare. And there's a fair amount of daredevil driving around London as well. There's some dojo action, which is great because, those of you who may not know, um, Rog um, himself, was was a renowned karate expert and studied to to quite a high degree so a lot of of when he's doing this kind of action in this film or this series and perhaps later in the man with the golden gun the early 70s he would be lapping it up it would be like feeding a donkey strawberries with that kind of action he'd be able to, to handle it he does get a bit of a pasting in the dojo, if you'll pardon the expression. Yeah, in the dojo um, that we, we see, which is run by a really unfit looking guy, is, and I think it seems to take place maybe in the boxing gym that we saw the other week where he was giving Nosha Powell a bit of a pasting. Looks very, very familiar. The idea is that they're partnered up and Peter Corio himself, alleged to be a karate expert in the TV series, um, yeah, he, he gets kind of like very, very much touch and go. And it's only the intervention of the dojo master that breaks up some some nastiness. So already, you know, Simon's got this guy marked down in his black books as as not only being a potential thief, but um, a bit of a wrong one as well. Yeah, there's a lot of cross and double cross. Mm -hmm. The thread that I notice in a lot of Leslie Charteris stories, and indeed in a, a lot of these episodes, is there are jewels. Yes, yeah. There are fake jewels. Yes. Not necessarily in this one, but quite often. And quite often there's a switcheroo. Yes, there are. Only last night I saw that with, with these very eyes. I saw that when there were fakes, genuine ones, genuine fakes fake genuines i don't know i must admit i found it trouble keeping up 
until the very end, until it's revealed who has or hasn't got the real the real jewel. Yeah, and I'd never have guessed that that dark-haired girl would turn out to be a badden. Yeah, go figure. Who saw that coming? But in The Smart Detective, we're sold a dummy because it's the blonde-haired girl who turns out to be playing a double game. Yeah, there's a fair amount of, of like I said, of, of intrigue. Now, there are... He's got some allies in this. Like I said, he's got Claude Eustace Teal on his side. He's also got Fabia Drake um, as Aunt Prudence. Um, so he, he does build up like a little bit of a mini gang to tackle the villains in this. And indeed, the villain himself has a bit of a gang um, with loads of familiar faces, such as like Larry Taylor, Reg Nye, um, amongst others, um, being either punched or given a bit of a working over. We know that they are villains because... You mentioned before, Guy, about potential tropes. Um, I've noticed, certainly over the past, this series, and maybe the series before it, anyone who drives a Ford Zephyr, just like they're trouble, they're wrong, and it makes you almost look back and hope that the Corgi company would do kind of like a box set where you get the, the white Volvo with the same symbol on the, on the bonnet, and like a blue or black Ford Zephyr as, as kind of like the villain's car. It seems Ford Zephyr is almost up there now with your favourite, the white Jag. Yes. I didn't see any Ford Zephyrs go off cliffs, but... Um... <laughs> They're too valuable to destroy, Guy. Well, certainly. If you look at bangers in cash, I suspect that there is a premium on them. Anyway, we've got various things. There's a mysterious note about a Miss Dallas, which turns mm. out not to be a person. Yes, yeah. Uh, nice bit of clever kind of like throwing us down a, um, a blind alley. But no, it does turn out to make sense. Partly because, and this seems to be, I don't know whether it's just the saint or whether it was a real thing in the 60s, but there's an awful lot of people who live on boats. Uh, again, I mean, don't forget, we do know people who live on boats. Our friend Charles, Charlie Charles, the actor, does live in a boat and yeah it seemed to be the done thing um back then one of my fave kind of like 60s spy or spy spoofs otley with tom courtney james bolan and his missus live on a boat on the thames so yeah it does seem to maybe it was a lifestyle kind of gone with the winds now maybe people can't afford it anymore. i suspect moorings were much cheaper than they are now mm. It's not an exclusive thing to the Saints. There were a reasonable number of houseboat sets used in the Avengers, particularly in the studio days. And of course, in May Gray, true to the seamen on stories, there was a lot of barge action. A lot of barge action. And don't forget, it's still a familiar thing nowadays. If anyone remembers, I think the second series of Happy Valley, um, the dastardly Tommy Lee Royce um, kidnaps his own son and hides out on a barge. So, yeah. yeah, they've still got mileage left in them. Well, it's good to hear, given the uh, housing market is so difficult. that <laughs> It is so fluid at the moment. Yes, there are alternatives. Um, so the smart detective, it seems, is menacing this young woman whose brother apparently has been not only set up to be accused of stealing jewels but has been run over before he can exonerate himself. And the saint seems to think that this is something that needs to be put right. 
and he takes the young woman to see his favourite aunt, who is a courtesy aunt, not a real aunt, because we've discussed before about the lack of saint relatives. And it's played by Fabio Drake, who, once again, as always, is having a whale of a time. It's sort of like late career blooming, because she started off very early days, very early teens, and touring with like English Shakespeare companies. You know, she she played opposite Laurence Olivier in a student production of Taming of the Shrew. And this sort of like late bloom in life where all of a sudden she was given this lease. I think it was partly, in fact, due to she'd been Roger's voice teacher. And uh, yeah, apparently she, she was uh, very, very gifted at elocution. And it was sort of like, oh, you know what? You're good enough to be an actress. And just, I did used to be an actress. Oh, well, that, that gives you an advantage even more then. And I, I think that idea of just you know casting someone like that, like you said, who seems to be just enjoying themselves. It certainly does. She makes a fantastic appearance in uh, the Danger Makers episode of The mm -hmm. Avengers. Just comes in and steals the show right at the end. But... Despite having the appearance of someone who can handle herself, she gets turned over by two henchmen and the girl gets kidnapped. Mm. Yeah. But how did they know where to go to her remote cottage that only she and Simon? Yeah, and then you begin to, to, to go through that questioning routine of, right, okay, who's he, who's he spoken to? You know, is there someone that he's an old mate of his that he's trusted um, in, in this episode? Is there uh, someone we've met for the first time that's pleading, you know, for, for help and support? And you realise, wait a minute, the only person who's asked for help and support is that young woman herself. And so the saint when he turns up and um, releases Fabio Drake from her bonds, it's meant to go and rescue uh, the young blonde mm. woman. And, of course, the Volvo heads off and is followed by he the henchmen. Um, what are they driving, Guy? <laughs> um, I think they're possibly driving a Ford Zephyr, aren't they? Yay! Um, and it's quite a hairy car chase. It is. It. It's a very daredevil kind of car chase. Uh, it looks like one of those ones where two stunt drivers were originally going to be paid £15. Um, and maybe the director, John Llewellyn Moxie, just said, tell you what, if we pay you 20 what are you prepared to do for that? Um, and they'll just go, all right, you you just get your cameras ready. You and Frank Watt and, and Lionel Baines, you just get your cameras ready and leave the rest to us. And for a TV series of the 60s, driving around city streets, it's crazy. It certainly is. I didn't notice any empty cardboard boxes being hit. <laughs> no. Though in one of the episodes of UFO I've just watched, there was a whole bunch of uh, empty cardboard boxes being ploughed into. <sighs> but hey, it was at a film studio, and you expect that sort of thing. You do. Just, you know, load cardboard boxes left round. So the henchman and the smart detective think that Roger is putting the pedal to the metal, heading towards Miss Dallas, the houseboat. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, he can plant some jewels at the saint's flat, which I must admit, the saint's not only lax with his personal security, but he really ought to get a chain put on that door. 
He should. I mean, I don't know. Is it just like a simple Yale lock? Is that is that all he's got? I don't know whether he even um, drops the catch, as they used to say when he used to be going out of his front door. I mean, it may it may as well be just like a beaded curtain for the security uh, um, facilities that he has at the moment. And then the smart detective heads off to the Westminster Museum, climbs onto the roof and down this unguarded air conditioning unit. So there's a bit of air conditioning action, mm. possibly the same air conditioning um, tubing that was used in that prison break in Cornwall. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And he's able to break open the case without the guards being aware. And then he shoves all the jewels into his bag mark swag and then crawls out again only to be confronted on the roof by our rog it's one of the scenes that we um we never see in in the episodes of the saints shall we dub it what's known as the twigging scene where simon templar figures out what's going on and who's a wrongan and who's a righton. You never see that scene, you know, it might be when he's driving along, it might be after a bit of a punch up, it might be while he's having a drink with the police or something like that. When he figures out, oh, wait a minute, I know what's what is what. And I suppose because we don't see that scene, it adds a little bit to the suspense at the end of the episodes when we, we just think, how's he gonna get out of this? And usually he gets out of this because he has twigged earlier on who's a right and who's a wrong. Um, and there's been one of those phone calls to the police to turn up at the last moment. Yes, I mean, presumably he must have got a taxi from Fabio Drake's remote cottage because otherwise the henchman would have seen him. Or maybe he just got on a bike and cycled all the way back to London. Like um, <laughs> it looks a right distance. But he's wearing a suit, so he's looking very suave for the rooftop punch-up. And um, usually when that sort of thing takes place, somebody goes over the edge and can't help the police with their inquiries, but the police are quick enough to catch him this time. Yeah, I mean, look what happened to, what was the episode with the um, uh, um, the Lord Mayor, who was a right wrong gun with a big fight on the um uh, oh, actually wasn't even a completed building it was just girders and scaffolding um and as soon as that that duking began you realize that yeah someone's going to take you know the express elevator down to the ground floor i suppose it depends whether you can uh, afford to play fast and loose with your guest stars rather than um, <laughs> your stuntmen so the saint rescues the emeralds because he's already explained the cultural significance of emeralds as and Claude Eustace Teal has explained the value in cash terms of them right at the beginning. Yeah, it's basically all smiles again. I think the uh, double-crossing blonde woman is basically waiting in the getaway car and she gets nicked. And everyone's quite happy. Fabio Drake's had a fabulous time driving around <laughs> Uh, in the Volvo uh, so I kind of guessed it probably would be her actually yes there we go uh, I've got Jules Houseboat 
um, blonde who apparently betrayed her own brother, assuming it was her brother. Yeah, assuming it was her brother. With no evidence of that. But there was a ransacked flat. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, not a particularly successful ransacking. Again, it's it's going through stuff very very quickly. Yes, quite easy to um, stage a ransacking just by knocking over a table lamp or something, isn't it? Uh, it is. I. It's like when people attempt to make a room look as if it's been ransacked, but they do it in a way in which they're very concerned that something may break or look out of place, like delicately turning over a chair or a lamp. I wouldn't know how to ransack somewhere properly, actually. Uh, well, I suppose, first of all, it's what you're looking for. You know, if, if you know, if uh, nowadays we, we've got the problem, you know, you, oh, wait a minute, I'm going through all these sheets of paper back in the 60s, great. Um, the majority of the time nowadays, it's something even smaller to look for. No, where's that USB stick? Um, oh, what? It could be anywhere in this place. Could be any one of those hundred dead USB <laughs> sticks stuck in a drawer. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, first place I would probably look if uh, someone did, you know, I was looking for a USB stick, which has that evidence which would clear my name. Um, I think just out of devilment, I'd slash open the bottom of a sofa. <laughs> And then, and then the cushions on that sofa as well, um, and it would just make a mess. It would just make a mess. But I feel as if I was doing the right thing. I just think I'm too polite. <laughs> and then it's taking all those books off the shelves and flicking through the pages. Actually, good thing with USB sticks, you wouldn't have to do that now, would you? Because you'd be able to see the the book would be all misshapen if it had one stuck to a page. If it's a hard copy. You could slip what? it down the spine. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know whether you've ever tried this, Guy, whether you've ever had the, the, the time to do this at home, which is to cut out rectangles of um, the pages in a book so you have got space to drop a USB stick. You know what? It takes ages. And get bored after a while. I have seen it done. and <laughs> It took about a week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bored with this now. Right, uh, so that's the smart detective. Who's in it? Brian Worth, his only saint, and in spite of his 84 screen credits, his longest TV run appears to be six episodes of Francis Storm Investigates. Any ideas, Dave? Right, I'm going to say Francis Storm lives on a yacht um which is permanently moored just off the isle of Wight, uh and every once in a while when there's those crazy cases that the isle of Wight pd can't deal with francis storm is bought in but the trick is because he's wanted by um the isle of Wight police he can never set his feet on dry land and he has two assistants who do all the running around for him on the island I'd watch that. It's the sort of thing that Southern would have come up with, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd watch it. However, it was made by ATV, and it's mm. lost. Oh, so we could be right. <laughs> we could be. Um, I think you ought to copyright that and ask for a revival. Yeah, I'm going to... Uh, let's put it in our made-up TV series file. He has four appearances in Danger Man. 
plus one in the champions, the prisoner and department S. His big screen roles include the Arsenal Stadium mystery, when he must have been quite young, as opposed to... Yes, it's actually in 39. <laughs> yeah. So you're talking about something that's uh, nearly 30 years later. The Man in the White Suit and Peeping Tom, which is a broad range of genres. He's got no points, but there is an Avengers connection. Wow. Patrick McNee was a regular customer at the Spanish restaurant he ran with his wife in Chelsea. Oh, that's lovely. So Anne Lawson, blonde, I guess in her mid-twenties. Would you like to guess her height? I don't know. I'm going to go, I don't know, about five foot three, four, something like that. Might be shorter. Higher, higher. It's um, five, six. five foot five and a half. Oh, so glad I hit the post. I guess they thought Justin Lord would give the game away being the bad girl, so they used her. Anyway, Anne Lawson, 19 screen credits, including one Sergeant Cork, Richard the Lionheart, uh, three single plays, last seen in Marty Feldman's Comedy Machine in 1971. But she played the same character, Connie Jones, in no less than 74 episodes of Water and Connie and Walter and Connie reporting. Any guesses? Right, I'm going to say Walter and Connie are a um, mismatched couple in the first series who work on a local newspaper. Um, at the end of the first series, they get married, and this spurns them on for more success, and they get a job on a national newspaper where the stories become bigger, better, and in some instances, deadlier. Yeah, I remember that series. Um, <laughs> it was, in fact, a Learn English series aimed at West Germany and originally funded by the British Council. Gott und Himmel. So, there you go. That was her major contribution to film, TV, or whatever, as far as I can tell. Fabio Drake, we've already talked about, last seen in the Miracle Tea Party. Um, and again having a ball she's also been in man in a suitcase the prisoner four episodes of the world of wooster as aunt agatha and who could be better seven episodes of middlemarch she was in callan the troubleshooters the liver birds the palaces jewel in the crown and inspector morse a pillar of television with one avengers point the danger makers as previously discussed barry shaw's in the karate instructor this is the last of his two saints and his Avengers point is a lost episode from the studio days. Um, Martin Miller, single plays, Danger Man, Zero One, uh, Ghost Squad, Man of the World, The Third Man, Adam Adamant, Doctor Who, The Foresight Saga, The Prisoner, Troubleshooters, Department S, and one priceless but uncredited Avengers point. Um, Reg Lye, born in Sydney, Budgie, Ace of Wands, Randall and Hopkirk, The Champions, Dr. Finley, Adam Adamant, Jason King, and it's the second of three saints. Larry Taylor, who we've discussed before, 152 credits, one point, we've seen him before because he's in seven saints and appearances in almost every ITC show. And for once... He's just got a jaw that's made for punching. He really has. Uh, and for once, he's not playing a South American. <laughs> Ron Welling, the garage mechanic, specialised in tradesman roles, ranging from second workman in The Plane Makers to old gravedigger in EastEnders. 
<laughs> right. Okay. Why would you need an old grave digger? Are they more respectful? Possibly. They've got a great deal more experience in that sort of thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Dealing with sensitivity. What? And they're more philosophical when they take a skull out of the ground. And yeah. Mind you, it was the Queen Vic, not the Prince of Denmark, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. <coughs> Uncredited. Jack Arrow, Avril Botting, Vic Chapman, George Curtis, Michael Dempsey, Arthur Goodman and Walter Henry. So that's the smart detective. Um, the next is The Persistent Parasites. Dave, given the title of the original story, should we be grateful it was toned down even for the swinging 60s? Yes, because the original story for this, as you rightly pointed out, was set um, in a nudist colony in the south of France. And uh, that we, we just couldn't have got away with it back then. Couldn't have got away with it back in the 60s. Yes, the reluctant nudist, I think, was George McGeorge, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And presumably everyone else threw themselves into this situation with Gerard de Vrive, including Simon Templer, who has nothing to hide. No, um, nothing. Yeah, nothing to hide at all. Are you carrying small arms? No, I'm fine. Thank you very much. It's a very odd title. And when it begins to unspool, um, I don't know about you. And this reveals our classical education background, Guy. I thought we were going to be in for a version of Ben Johnson's Volconing. Or maybe a spin-off um, from the cinematic release, which came out at about the same time, which was The Honey Pot, directed and written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, which uses the same kind of plot where um, what appears to be a philanderer or, or serial husband has gathered three former partners to reveal a big piece of information. But then things begin to go awry. Um, you mentioned before, Guy, about, about tropes. Where this one is set in the south of France, one of our favourite locations, or Ron, the south of the studio, which stands in for the south of France. And uh, again, maybe this is something we could keep a track on, is the adjectives which are used at the beginning of the episode to describe Simon Templer. Because that accusation usually comes from a variety of sources. Sometimes it's a young lady, sometimes it's a police officer, sometimes it's just someone passing by in the street, sometimes it's from a journalist. And in this case, Simon Templer is described as being fatally magnetic. Probably means he uh, interferes with radios. Yeah, or street lighting. Uh, so in this case, Simon has gone to visit um, one of those old friends of his that we've never heard of before, Waldo Oddington who is played by Corsac Linda. And indeed, it appears that three of his ex-wives are all sort of like gathering for, like I said, a Volpone-type plot. And we seem to be setting ourselves up for a country house mystery because uh, an individual is killed right near the beginning. But it's OK. Um, it is neither Roger's friend and neither is it a major person in the plot. It's just someone who got in the way and may have been mistaken for Roger's friend. Because he um, was wearing the same shirt. Yes, yeah, kind of like, oh, what a clumsy killer you are. So there are these these wives, each of whom seem defined by their nasty characters. Um, and there are also other people involved there. There's um, his business manager. There uh, is the marvellously named George McGeorge. Um, great character name. Um, so there is um, a, a semblance of, of suspects. 
just to be on the safe side. So waiting in the wings, uh, we have our diamond as Colonel Latignon, who we've seen before and uh, realised that the south of France is his beat. I must admit, the Colonel gives Rog an awful lot of latitude in his own private investigation, even down to the extent of stealing a police launch, which is sort of ignored at the end because the real killer is apprehended. So you can get away with minor crimes, providing you're solving a major crime. It's all comes down to who the real killer is. And they're carefully hidden, I must admit. So, yeah, we, we, we kind of have like a nice little country house mystery. We know we like these sort of country house mysteries. And again, we don't see the twigging where um, you know Simon Templer realises that, oh, wait a minute, I know who the killer is in, um, in this instance. Uh, but yeah, there's lots of lovely detail. There's lots of lovely acidic asides. We keep seeing on the harbour front background, if you if you do look, there's a Gervais shop. I don't know if it's a Ricky Gervais shop, but if you look carefully, we keep seeing it. I don't know what they do or sell. But yes, the police, I, maybe the colonel just wanted a little bit of time off and realised that, you know what, we've got Simon Templar here. I'll let him do it. And he does. He does, obviously not um, without, unfortunately, his, um, his friend from being killed. But uh, one of the other big reveals is that for a millionaire, he's not got much money. No, I suspect that the millionaire was playing with fire. Because if you invite a whole bunch of people who think that they're going to be beneficiaries of your will to the island... And then mm. your plan is to say, look, I haven't got any money anyway. Yabu sucks. What do you hope to achieve? It's a bit like, I suppose, if we look at a recent cinema release, The Glass Onion with Daniel Craig as, as the world's greatest detective on the case when Edward Norton's character does exactly the same thing. He invites a group of people who all sort of like bear a grudge against him for one reason or another, but only go there under the promise that maybe there's going to be some cash money at the end of it. So everyone is a suspect. Yes, I suspect everyone and no one. And it all hinges on a bit of work on the safe and also an insurance policy. Yes. And some heavy psychological pressure by not picking up a phone. Uh, yeah, the characters, characters of the wives are briskly and broadly drawn, but each of them brings a certain amount of memorable acting to it. Everyone is is quite identifiable. You know, they work as a collective unit, even though they should be really working against one another, as if they're after this money. Um, they work really well together. Anyway, it turns out to be the English wife who was uh, wise enough to make sure that part of her settlement was that there was an insurance policy. And she's played by Jan Holden, who has two points. She was also in Fire Maidens from Outer Space, seven episodes of The Odd Man, plus The Baron, The Champions, and 15 episodes of Agony, and guested in many other shows. Cess Linda, a fantastically busy career on both sides of the Atlantic, born in Poland but raised in Canada, 162 screen credits and memorably played Felix Leiter in Goldfinger. Yes. Half a point from the New Avengers. Unsurprisingly, one of those set in Canada. <laughs> Yay. 
Um, Annette Carroll, born in Germany, one point, plus Sergeant Cork, Hugh and Jungle, Compact, and guested in all the relevant ITC shows. Sonia Fox, 59 episodes of Compact, two Dangermans, guested in various ITC shows, then 70 episodes of Crossroads, and finishing with London's Burning. Arnold Diamond's character, Inspector Latignon, recurs throughout The Saint whenever Simon is in the south of France. Anyway, here's two points and another 200 screen credits. Brian McDermott, a pillar of television with work ranging from The Four Just Men to Babylon 5. Good range. It's a good long pedigree, isn't it? Mm. Jeremy Longhurst, 69 screen credits, including Danger Man, Sergeant Cork and Compact. Donald Hewlett, probably best known as the CO in It Ain't Our Fault Mum, 56 episodes. Long runs in Compact, You Rang Me Lord, The Very Merry Widow, he has one and a half points. Anne Gillis, last seen in The Romantic Matron, she was American but moved over here and her last screen credit is 2001. David Garth, three points, 112 screen credits, he's also in a return of the saint plus guesting in nearly everything else and adding color to this black and white show are the uncredited keith smith paul berardi alec bragonzi vic chapman alan chance austin cooper and arthur goodman um yeah we seem to go we're having a little glut of alan chance i've noticed that he's got five saints and they all seem to come on the bounce yeah. So I, I don't know whether, he, you know, he was just passing the studio and he was willing to play Tourist in Bar and did it with such elan um, that they just said, hey, you know, you can, Al, you want to do the next one? Um, yeah, because he, he seems to do do a quick succession of them. We've all done it, haven't we? And then, you know, yes. so, suddenly you're booked up for the entire week and you have to sleep on somebody's sofa. <laughs> does happen. Right. The next one. The man who could not die <gasps> has hurrah a Welsh hero played by someone who um, was a villain a couple of weeks previously. You know, I know what's going on. Don't know. Um, now, as soon as you hear an episode is called "The Man Who Could Not Die," you strongly suspect that there are going to be people who will die in this episode. And sure enough, there are. This is um, kind of what got a lovely little double bonus here. Um, because it's a Terry Nation script from a Leslie Charteris story, um, and Roger Moore directs. It's pretty good, actually. I'll talk a bit about Roger's direction later on. But the MacGuffin in this is blackmail. But I'm certain it's blackmail. Blackmail. Someone who suspects their business partner is being blackmailed, as in the Scorpion or the man who mm. liked toys. But it turns out that Patrick Allen is being blackmailed, for very good reasons, because he's a murderous psychopath. <laughs> and what don't you do to a murderous psychopath, Dave? Right. Okay. Um. I mean, this is this is criminology 101. Never attempt to blackmail someone you know who has already gotten away with murder. Because if they've murdered once, they may as well do it again, and they're going to do it to you. Jane Birkin, who passed away um, only yesterday, famously in big budget version of Death on the Nile, pays a French maid who fatally knows who the real killer is and rather than going to the authorities, attempts to blackmail them and ends up with their throat gashed. It's like it's a lesson for us all. But then he decides that there's going to be a final reckoning and 
he gives Patrick Allen his address. Now look here, Helen. It's about time we had a final settlement. Well, that suits me. You bring the money over here, and we'll discuss it. Where do I come? I'm a houseboat named the Swan, moored near Chelsea Bridge. And don't keep me waiting. Oh, you just don't do that. Yeah, because this, this starts off because um, a friend of Roger's, Nigel Perry, thinks that, yes, indeed, something is going on with his business partner, Patrick Allen, who plays um, Miles Hallin, who is described as an adventurer. And we understand attempted to rescue um, Nigel's dad when they were out on one of their wild jaunts. But as soon as we see Patrick Allen, we have an idea that he's not a particularly nice type. Nigel's um, fiance, um, Moina Stanford, played by Jenny Linden, doesn't like him at all, doesn't like Patrick Allen at all. It seems boorish, um, but also strangely menacing as well. But every once in a while, he goes very, very quiet, and that is because he's being blackmailed. Um, Rog does a bit of sleuthing around, discovers this money to be paid out. Um, and as Patrick Allen says, you know, it's nothing to do with you. It's the personal matter. Um, but yeah, as it begins to unwind and Patrick and Robin decide to go on um, a holiday to the most dangerous of locations, North Wales, and go on a caving holiday. Just checking, Guy, just checking. Um, what kind of car do they drive to get up to North Wales in? It's not a Zephyr, is it? It is a Ford Zephyr, yes. And so already we're sniffing out the fact that Patrick Allen may be a wrong one. Yeah, sure enough, Rog is convinced by Jenny Linden that maybe there's something untoward going on in North Wales. So he races up and sure enough, there's some caving action. I don't know where it's like Danarogov Caves or Plechwed Slate Caverns in Blyneifestiniog. Um, anyway, there's there's something going on because it appears that Patrick is determined to make it seem that Robin Phillips died in a caving accident. So he will inherit the company, plus all the good things that go with it. So the Dragon's Cave, as it's known, which is described as a desolate place, um, so it probably is near Blind Arthur there's, um, there's lots of caving and rope action going on. And, and Patrick Allen comes up with a mad idea of trying to make it look as if not only has one person died by a caving accident, but he's also determined to get rid of Rog as well in another caving accident. One thing I noticed, I know it was the 60s and potholing was probably still in its infancy, but do you wear suede desert boots to go caving? I certainly wouldn't. Uh, when I was doing my A-level geology, and we would go exploring very dangerous, desolate places in North Wales in Snowdonia. Um, we were always kitted out in very robust boots, those big, galumphing, heavy ones, where if you were pushed over, you'd be flat on your back, but your feet would still be flat on the floor. <laughs> yes, I did notice Roger's footwear, and he managed to find himself uh, a foothold, which allows... Patrick Allen to overbalance and plunge mm. to his doom. Now, it's quite an impressive set of plaster rock faces that we see. It is, yeah. I don't think that they built those purely for this episode. And I'm wondering, can you think of any other films that might have been made around that time where they would have this stuff in the scene doc? Uh, let's have a look. We are, let's have a look. We are 19, when are we? 
we are 19 so broadcast 1965 um, um i'm just going to hazard a guess here where you may need some internal old cave workings or something like that um i don't know whether you have to paint them a different color um if you're filming in black and white than if you are in color but just off the top of my head play with the zombies <laughs> play with the zombies yes that did occur to me play with the zombies <laughs> Is it Plague of the Zombies? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, there may be oh. others. Um, I can't remember. Um, there were caves in Chi. I don't know if we're, we're too early for that. No, yeah. There are uh, um, there are caves in, in, in Chi as they're entering the city, the lost city, yeah. Because there are um, chasms to leap over uh, in this. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a reasonable set. And we've said that Rog directs this with some elan. He does. He he uses he uses the artificial location well. But there's even some very nice stuff because when they're putting Patrick Allen and his young business partner on the train and they're standing discussing, there's this conversation and in the background, framed between the figures you can see the menacing Patrick Allen. And I'm a big fan of Patrick Allen, but I must say mm -hmm. that in this episode, no scenery goes unchewed. Uh, I check that cave scene for teeth marks. Yes, a bravura performance. <laughs> so there you go. And of course, they're rescued by the Welsh publican. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it was actually the same pub, looking at that, that was in the House of dragon's rock yes you never know yeah and certainly but meredith edwards is is missus in this is very dragon-like as well in um in her curtness uh and yeah you know as a as a working professional in a front-facing environment she certainly has a glowering countenance towards customers even her regular ones now the last time she appeared in the contract, you queried which part of Wales her accent hailed from. Mm, yeah, I was I was a little unconvinced, almost as if there was no one there to keep an eye on her. Playing opposite Meredith Edwards. Now, according to IMDb, she was born in Radnorshire, um, in Ryada. So, yeah, maybe just one of those things. Oh, wait a minute, I'll put on a bit of an accent. And they just let her get away with it. Yeah, well, she's back again. I don't know if she'll have the same accent, but it isn't the one with the giant ants. So, uh, ah. so who's in it? Well, Patrick Allen, whose other half, Sarah Lawson, was in Crime of the Century. He was such a star, it must have been almost impossible for him to appear as a guest in any show and not steal it. <laughs> in the early 60s, there's 39 episodes of Crane, where he plays a cafe owner in North Africa who engages in a bit of smuggling on the side. No resemblance to any other classic movie, even though his character is called Richard. Uh, the cafe isn't called well, Rick's. I can't imagine what that would be based on. No, Sam Kidd was his sidekick, and he got his own children's spin-off, Orlando. And then for Patrick Allen, there's 19 episodes of Brett, where Mr. Allen plays a tycoon whose shady past is about to catch up with him. That's got a lot of old favourites uh, and would be very entertaining. But being a BBC series from 1971, 
it doesn't exist anymore. Ah, oh, another one we can make up. Single plays, numerous shows. He was the king of the voiceover, ranging from comedy, Roland Rat, Black Adder, Reeves and Mortimer, to the voice of doom for the government's nuclear Armageddon public information <laughs> films. And of course, he has two Avengers points. Um, Jenny Linden, 79 screen credits, one point in the very last Studio Avengers, which was called Lobster Quadrille. Uh, Sergeant Cork, Sherlock Holmes, Public Eye, The Champions, Jack and Ori, the list goes on, and one more saint to come. Uh, Robin Phillips, he must have made this around the same time as his one Avengers point. Uh, previous to that, he's been in five episodes of Compact and Doctor Who, and he'd be gone to, uh, he would go on to be in four episodes of the Foresight Saga. His main career, though, was on stage as a successful actor and director in Canada. So it's a two-way street. Richard Stapley, Stapley, confusingly also known as Richard Wyler, uh, the last of his two saints. He had a wide-ranging career on both sides of the Atlantic and was probably best known for 40 episodes of The Man from Interpol as Agent Anthony Smith. Meredith Edwards, back this time as a hero, not a double-crossing boxing second elsewhere. <laughs> uh, among his 113 credits are May Gray, Adam Adamant, Sexton Blake, Randall and Hopkirk, uh, and guest spots in quite a few sitcoms. In the unexcavated layers of the uncredited, Chris Adcock, Lewis Alexander, Paul Berardi, Ernest Blythe, Tony Castleton, Harold Coyne, Mabel Etherington, Arthur Goodman, Victor Harrington, and Alan Chance. Yeah, like I said, he, he, he must have just, maybe he was doing community service and they just had to stay at the studio because he, he plays Man in Prince of Wales. I should point out, that is a pub and not another character. And there's like a little mini sequence of them. Yeah, so that um, wraps up the man who could not die, who did in the end. Yeah, I know. I knew he was going to happen as soon as I saw that title. And so I think we'll draw this to a close. We still have the St. Bid's Diamonds, which I suspect is something to do with jewels. Um, oh, 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 yeah, it is. Yeah, I tell you what, you're not far out, but... Wait a minute, isn't the Spanish cow also to do with jewels and diamonds? I believe it is. It's like the saint was sponsored by H. Samuels <laughs> or Cartier. And I don't know about jewels, but I believe the very last black and white episode involves treasure. Oh, right, okay. Yes, it is. It's it's a gang of three, isn't it, who are who have a map which may lead to treasure. I'd imagine part of that treasure may be some jewels. Uh, quite possibly, and whether the map is divided into three or whether it, one of them gets, or all of them get the black spot, um, I have no idea. But we have that to look forward to, as well as our reviews of the Spanish cow and the St. Bid's diamonds. Because we have pressing business. You've got to go and watch uh, Timothy Spall in that. Yeah, a, a depressing drama. Yeah, yeah which is... Um, very important for um, to lift one's spirits. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly after I've, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of work with the probation service today, so I need cheering up. <laughs> yes, I have to get ready for my um, Scandinavian. That's right. Adventure. Yes, that's your your off, aren't you? What what's your itinerary? Stockholm, Sweden. 
will it just come up in dramatic letters over some stock footage? It certainly will. Um, I don't know if there's going to be any balcony action. It could be. I can't quite remember whether the saint ever visited Stockholm, though he did do a Swedish accent, if you remember. Um, mm -hmm. um, yes. Which was plausibly implausible, or implausibly plausible, uh, whichever way to describe it. And then we take the train to Copenhagen. Wonderful. Big letters. Well, wonderful Copenhagen. <laughs> Friendly old port of the town, with its cool. harbour lights and its cheery sights. Indeed. We'll probably be... Um, Visiting Tivoli Gardens, uh, various other places, yes. probably looking at what's left of the Little Mermaid because it's um, frequently subject to vandalism, but I'm not quite sure what state it's in at the moment. And there will be an awful lot of looking at reconstituted and rescued shipping. Oh, right. Uh, well, I mean, one of the things I've, I was all, I've always been impressed by... Um, being a member of the Brutalist Appreciation Society um, on, on Facebook is sometimes some of the daring architecture that the Scandinavians appear to, to put together and put up. Dave, are you talking about the Swedish Film Institute? <laughs> it could be, amongst others. I looked up where the Swedish Film Institute was. I thought, well, maybe it'll be, be a bit like Chinichita, but obviously... Oh, right. No, without the um, submarine set, etc., <laughs> which we both enjoyed. Anyway, it is apparently a renowned piece of brutalist architecture. Oh, right. I think that basically you just go in to buy a copy of The Seventh Seal and that's it. <laughs> that's all they have in the shop. I have no real idea of what to expect except a very expensive pint and an open sandwich yes apparently it can be a bit pricey so so careful as you go i would advise if you are hoteling it is stock up on bread rolls um at the breakfast buffet your smorgasbord of a morning yes. just take some greaseproof paper and a couple of um kind of like um old loaf bags and yeah just take it because my friends rob and beth when they went they felt like they had the most expensive breakfast in christendom in in copenhagen they said it was very nice very tasty um a selection of fish as well which is sometimes a daring choice for breakfast but yeah very expensive yeah I, i'm under strict instructions that we are to go nowhere near the pickled herring <laughs> but uh, anyway that's what we're going to do so i'm going to miss the live last black and white episode of The Saint. But as long as my personal video recorder does its job, then I should be able to watch it. But of course, there is Talking Pictures TV Encore. There is, which I, I because um, I was, uh, last Sunday, I wasn't able to see it live. I was at a concert um, watching The Proclaimers in uh grand theater in Lee. uh so i didn't watch it so i can i can dip into um tptv as it's known and um, and what's lovely is you can just go oh wait a minute let's have a look what else is on here and sometimes you might come across kind of like a little a little um, unexpected thing so as part of my lost movie project which i've been working on um on and off since since lockdown the other week I was able to catch up with Robert Altman's moody 
early 70s um, psychological thriller, Images. Oh. Jeez. It's all shot in, in Ireland. Um, Susanna York stars in it uh, and won an award at Cannes for Best Actress. It's got a very eerie score by John Williams. And you begin to figure out there's the game afoot, or is there? It's, it's worth catching. Well, I will uh, look out for that because it will be coming round, doubtless, again, mm -hmm. on Talking Pictures. And if people are worried that their Sunday evenings are going to be bereft of the Black and White Saints, it's still lagging behind on Thursday evenings. I think. Oh, right, yes, you can still catch up with it now. I think it's on. Is it about eight o'clock? It's on, I think. Yeah, then with a bit of luck, they'll just press repeat. <laughs> hey, wait a minute, we're back at the beginning. But thanks to all our reviews, people will be able to be much better informed. They will. Hey, wait a minute. Is that is, is that the one with so and so? Where's my uh, where's my Alan Chunt collection? <laughs> where's Alan Bennett? <laughs> yeah, and where's Alan Bennett? Who knows? I'm going to start a rumour now. Maybe Alan Bennett is Alan Chunt. It's a possibility, isn't it? Not saying any more because I know I've said too much. We will be back to do those last three episodes of Roger Moore's Black and White Saint on rose-tinted black and white television. Um, we will probably start reviewing the colour versions because we turn the colour down and pretend they're still in black and white. They're available on ITVX. And believe it or not, there are other black and white series uh, available, including The Four Just Men, which I think we ought to Four Just Men is, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of legal drama as well on at the moment, with the main, the main chance, and Crown Court, as, as well as well as Rumpole of the Bailey. And Justice. Yes, yeah. I'd probably choose Rumpole, simply because Leo McKern is um, blessed in that role. Yes, there's a lot of legal stuff. Um, and of course, you just have to redress the courtroom set or shoot it from a different angle. And it's very efficient and cost effective. But uh, there we are. We will be making more um, judgments about what to review uh, and including guessing what lost TV series might really have been about. Yeah, yeah. Some of those. Um Right, I'm uh, I'm going to scoot now because um, I'm waiting on a bid on Auto Trader for a Ford Zephyr. So uh, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I'm going to hold out for that. Is it going to be grey or blue? Um, I'm going for the more sinister blue. Is it photographs better in black and white? Well, I should look forward to you uh, rolling up in that with the co-conspirator. Yes, with Larry Taylor. Right. Well, thank you very much, Dave. This has been Rose Tinted Black and White Television, uh, the review show. Uh, we've been, uh, as usual, reviewing black and white episodes of Roger Moore's The Saint, which are coming to a close at a TV station near you. We will be back in a couple of weeks when we will wrap the whole thing up and put a nice little bow on it. I thank you. Thank you. If any member of the family should die whilst in the shelter, put them outside, but remember to tag them first for identification purposes. Barrett's, Britain's major private house builder, offers the largest choice of top value houses.